my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. So many people when I started were like, what the hell is she doing? Like, she has this good day job. Like, what is this? I lacked the boldness even to think through a business plan and think this is what I want in three years. Like I had to collect the courage along the way to become that kind of leader. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we explore marketing from the math to the magic. And our guest today fits right into that. She once said that really interesting things happen at the intersection of instinct, intuition, and data. She's Gwyneth Paltrow, probably best known for her screen career as an actor with lots of awards, Academy Award, Golden Globe, Emmy, and lots of great roles. But today we want to focus on her as an innovative and successful entrepreneur, starting with an idea and exploding it into multiple businesses all tied together by her vision. She's from a creative family. Her father was a producer, her mom an actor, yet somehow Gwyneth had the business gene from stocking toys at an alternative toy store, Penny Whistle on Madison Avenue in New York, to founder and CEO of Goop. She's had the drive and vision of an entrepreneur. 
She made the loop, L.A., New York, London, and now is back in L.A. Gwyneth, welcome. Thank you very much. This is my life. You covered everything. <laughs> well, before we get into those stories, we're really going to boil it down. You in 60 seconds. Sounds good. I'm ready to go. Early riser or night owl? Early riser. New York or L.A.? Ooh, tie. New order or psychedelic furs? Psychedelic furs. Beach or mountains? Beach. Cats or dogs? Dogs, are you crazy? <laughs> Theater or cinema? Theater. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. It's about to get harder. Childhood hero? My dad. Professional hero? Brian Chesky. First job? Penny Whistle Toys. Favorite pasta shape? Rigatoni. Favorite play? A Streetcar Named Desire. Favorite performance by your mom? A Streetcar Named Desire. <laughs> Favorite vacation spot? The Exumas. Favorite goop product? Our all-in-one face oil. Preferred beverage? Green tea. And what's something you can't live without? My husband and children. Let's start with the obvious question. You've had such an amazing and busy career acting. What was the pull to business and more specifically to start your own business? Stupidity? <laughs> Naivete? I don't know. I guess I always have felt like I'm a relatively entrepreneurial person, though I don't think I would have defined it that way. But when I look back at being an artist, I think all artists who find some success at it, all artists who are able to provide for themselves by doing their art are by definition entrepreneurial. Like you have to have so much of those same qualities of self-belief and abject drive and... I know it surprises a lot of people when artists become entrepreneurs, but it doesn't surprise me because I think we are all very cut from the same cloth. I've always been a very independent person, and I think I've always wanted real agency. And unfortunately, in an acting career, you're always waiting for other people to let you express what needs to be expressed. You need permission. You need from the director. Or you need to get the part. So you need permission from the producer or the studio or whatever. And I found that very frustrating that I couldn't create and put things into the world. And I found myself being slowly drawn to this entrepreneurial space, you know, in the early days of the internet, it was such an exciting time to watch businesses being created and this whole new way and to see all of these, you know, existing business models being disrupted and disintermediated. And I don't know, I just thought it was fascinating. I also was very, very passionate about the lifestyle space. And I felt like I wasn't seeing anything that really spoke to me or answered my questions. And, and that was kind of the, the early impetus towards starting to explore how I might participate in the space and how I might found a business. And before you started Goop, you sort of put your toe in the water a little bit in this space. Can you give us that origin story? When I was a kid really doing, starting my movie career, I was 19. I've always been kind of obsessed with food and travel and culture and art. I mean, my dad raised me in a way to be very receptive and excited about 
these things. And I was very much his child in this way. So when I would go and do a film and, you know, this is pre-internet, I would find myself living in Toronto or Paris or Rome or, you know, Atlanta and really wanting to understand what the best of the city was. What did the city have to offer by way of not only food and, and culture, but, you know, stores and were, were there any cool yoga studios and there just wasn't a way to find this information. So I would go around the city and I would ask people, you know, if I saw like a, a cool looking girl in Paris, you know, in a cafe, I might ask her like, what are, what are your favorite shops? Um, I would ask crew members, you know, what is your favorite place to get a, a sandwich or a coffee? And I started to collect all this information about cities. And then I thought I've aggregated all this information. I should put it somewhere. So that was like the very early, 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 you know, kernel of then what became Goop. We're going to talk a little bit more about Goop, but I want to first jump back in time a little more. You stocked toys at Penny Whistle on Madison Avenue for folks who were not New Yorkers of that era. Penny Whistle had the cool and unusual toys in the day when unusual was hard to find back then. It was started by Meredith Brokaw, Tom Brokaw's wife. I lived above the store for a few years in the early 80s. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I actually know it well. How did you wind up at Penny Whistle? <laughs> well, my father was adamant that both my brother and I got jobs after school. So we moved to New York City, and in seventh grade— you know, I sort of set out on Madison Avenue and poking my head into stores and seeing if, you know, they needed any help. And so they took me at Penny Whistle and um, I was very excited. I mean, my father was a self-made guy. He had an incredible work ethic. And I think he was nervous to some degree to, you know, be raising two kids on the Upper East Side of Manhattan going to private school and living in a townhouse. You know, he I think he saw around corners and saw how that could lead to a certain entitlement that he really, really wanted to fight against. So we were working. I mean, my brother worked at the Double Duck Deli on the corner of 92nd and, and Madison. I worked at Penny Whistle. Um, I worked at my, my next job was at Kinder Sport, a ski store. Um, Although I didn't realize when I was a kid that when you go on spring break, you're supposed to ask permission uh, from your boss. So I sort of missed a week of work and I came back and they said, no, you didn't show up for work. Like you're fired. So <laughs> that was also a, a great early lesson for me in business. Um, but it was it was a great place to work. And as you said, the curation there was so cool and so different. And I think that's where I start to understand the power of curation. Besides, you have to show up for work to keep your job. What other lessons did you learn from those experiences? I learned about the importance of the customer the way that people interact with a customer and to really make the customer feel like they're having a special experience and to keep the back very tidy. That's good lessons. <laughs> you went to Spain for two months in high school. How did that change your view of yourself or the world? It was like an earthquake in my life in the best way. I mean, it just completely dismantled so many existing structures of who I thought I was and how I saw the world. 
I was really dropped in it into this wonderful family in the middle of Spain in a very small city where nobody spoke English in the family. And I had to adapt so quickly and learn the language so quickly. And I was completely enchanted by the culture, the way they saw the world, the way they came home and had lunch together every day and closed their eyes, you know, for 20 minutes and then went back to school or work, the importance of eating together, family. You know, I had never been around the rituals of Catholicism, for example, which I found quite foreign and beautiful. I feel like I came home a completely different kid. So let's move on a little bit. A striking number of the successful folks on this podcast have been college dropouts. <laughs> By the way, me included. Why did you drop out? Well, I was at the University of California at Santa Barbara, which is a fantastic school and, and probably the most beautiful school in California. But I really, really wanted to be acting. So I had sort of hooked up with an agent and I would kind of drive back and forth to Los Angeles and audition or, you know, I had gotten a very, very small part in a film it was basically like an extra. And I'll never forget my father, who was a very dry, hilarious New York Jew, saying to me, you know, you're doing both of these things very badly, meaning <laughs> I wasn't properly trying to act and I wasn't properly trying to go to school. And, you know, with the support of my parents, I decided to drop out to see if I could pursue an acting career. It, it sort of felt like it was burning a hole in my pocket. Like I had such urgency to get out there and do it and try it. And I felt on some level, you know, again, this abject, stupid self-belief, like I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. I know I'm going to make it. And I just need to get out there. And at some point my parents said, okay, we'll support you. Go give it a try. Well, it obviously worked out for you. I think the first time I met you was with the Robin Hood Foundation which for those who don't know is the innovative poverty fighting nonprofit in New York City. And I was really taken because your career was on a tear. I think you had already won an Academy Award in your 20s. And you have one amazing role after another, yet you found time to help your fellow New Yorkers in need. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about this part of your life? Yes, man. It was a whirlwind. I mean, you articulated it correctly when you said me doing what kind of one project after the next. It was a fast and furious time. I spoke to somebody, you know, when I was having like a overwhelming time, like after the Oscar and everything, my father was sick, my grandfather was sick. And I remember talking to somebody who said, you know, being of service is such a great way to stay focused on your true north, like who you are as a person. So I did a few things to be of service. And Robin Hood was certainly one of them. I mean, it's a, as you know, it's a fantastic organization. I was so happy to be supportive. I mean, all of the money from that organization goes into the hands and the mouths of people who really need it, as opposed to so many of these charities where it's all going to salaries and overhead. So I felt very proud to help. Let's jump ahead now. Let's jump to Goop and you as an entrepreneur, founder, and CEO. You started pulling together all this information you had and you wanted to share it. What year did you really start Goop and what was sort of that critical moment from I'm sharing my information to, hey, wait a minute, I think I got a business idea? So it's funny. When I first 
press send on my MailChimp account of my first Scoop newsletter. That was in 2008. And I had no idea that it would become a business or how I would monetize it as a business. I was just writing content from a very authentic place of like, this is what I found that I love. This is a great place to, you know, get the best cheese in London and all that kind of stuff. And I found that it had a lot of traction. And I found also that I was really positively impacting these businesses that I was talking about. And I thought, wow, okay, there's there's something here, like the people are trusting the curation. I think it was unmonetized for about five years. And then it was having such an impact that people were coming to me and suggesting that I monetize or or really just asking me how I thought I could monetize it. And, you know, at this point, I had spent a lot of my own money running it. And um, I thought, well, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if I could actually turn this into my job? So I started figuring it out. I met with a guy in London called Seb Bishop, who had been in e-commerce in the early days, and he was running Red for Bono, and he was interested in getting back into the for-profit sector. And we sat together and, and started to strategize, you know, how we would build it out. And we started with kind of an immediate revenue stream, which was through ads and then some native content, et cetera. But my passion really lay around creating product. But it was done very, very slowly and very organically. We kind of dipped our toes in the waters. Our e-commerce shop was first with collaborations with other brands. So we weren't doing much design or supply chain or fulfillment or anything like that. Then we had a bunch of other brands that we were aligned with that we were selling. And then, you know, then we got our first warehouse. It was very iterative. It was slow. And I think that I was really discovering what the business was as we went along. What were your expectations of it? Were you just uh, along to see where it went? Or did you have a vision of 10 years, 20 years, here's what we're building? You know, honestly, I felt like I wasn't given the permission to have ambition in that way around it. I was very timid. I think so many people when I started were like, what the hell is she doing? Like she has this good day job. Like, what is this? I lacked the boldness even to think through a business plan and think this is what I want in three years. Like I had to collect the courage along the way to become that kind of leader. And I don't think I was ready to be CEO myself until I was ready to do that. And so that was probably seven years ago. I allowed myself to think, you know, it's okay to have ambitions to really want to build something that's meaningful and impactful. And so I still feel like we're very much in the process of building that. More Math and Magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? 
You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Gwyneth Paltrow. This podcast is about marketing. So I have to ask this question. Why the name Goop? <laughs> well, I was seeking advice from an old friend of mine uh, whom you might know in New York, Peter Arnell. Of course. Legendary marketing guy. He was amazing. He was so instrumental in helping me meet, you know, the first guys who helped with web development and everything. And I said, I just don't know what the name should be because I really don't want it to be my name. Like my ambition would be to build something that would be far greater than me and it could stand for something that people would understand. And so I don't want it to be my name. And Peter came up with the name Goop. And I thought he was nuts. I mean, I thought it was such a weird sounding word. And he said, no, it's your initials with two O's in the name. And I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And he said, you know, all big internet companies have two O's in the name, you know, whether it be Facebook, Google, Yahoo, whatever. So I said, okay, Peter, I'm going to trust you. And then Goop was born out of that. Daily Candy had a successful editorial newsletter. Guilt had successful commerce, but the combination of the two, editorial and commerce, was very elusive. Why were you able to bring them together? What was the secret? 
I think the secret was for so long, I was so allergic to being transactional in that sense. And I'll never forget, I published one issue of Goop. I published an article on the French pharmacy, which I'm sure you know, when you go to Paris or anywhere in France, the pharmacies there are so cool. And they have like, you know, homeopathic things and they have like all this special stuff. And so I wrote a piece saying, you know, this is this great, you know, burn cream and this, there are these probiotic tampons and there's this great lip balm and all this stuff. And a woman stopped me and she said, oh my God, I loved that article on the French pharmacy, but it was so frustrating for me that I couldn't just click to buy everything. I was on Amazon.fr trying to buy this and that and searching. And it was the first time that it occurred to me that transaction could actually be a service as well. And that you didn't have to push product for revenue. If you made or curated things that you really believe in and thought were going to genuinely elevate someone's life in some way that you could do what we then called contextual commerce. And we've always stayed true to those principles. You know, we're obsessed with clean beauty and we have the highest clean beauty standards in the business. And so I think when people come to the website, they understand that and they understand that there's a really strong point of view. You know, there, I have a very strong point of view around fashion. So even when we were just buying like from a wholesale perspective and had a multi-brand matrix, it was very specific when we started G label, our clothing line is very, very true to me. So I wouldn't have been able to sleep at night if I felt like I was pushing something on somebody. You've been doing some very successful Goop podcast. How did you discover podcasting? And do you think of it as a separate business or is it integral to your entire brand development? I think I understood pretty early on in the game what podcasts were and why they were valuable. And I think, you know, we... We have always been a content first company and sometimes we've indexed too heavily into that, right? And so we're not driving enough revenue because obviously you want to grow and grow in a profitable way. But content is so critical to why we are relevant as a business. And we're always looking at various channels where we can proliferate with great content, you know, whether that's a Netflix show or whether it's a podcast or whether it's our digital content, et cetera. And I think a lot of brands have caught up to this as well. Some with, I think, more relevancy than others, but there's a, a content creation piece. I think that's really important for driving a modern omni-channel direct-to-consumer brand. And so the podcast is such a great way of folding that in. I mean, it is a revenue stream, right? Because we, we sell ads on it, but it also is a way to always articulate our curiosity at Goop, to really dig deeper with experts and doctors and amazing people that we have on. And I think podcasts are such a great forum. I love listening to podcasts and I listen to a lot of them. I think it serves two purposes. There is the revenue stream, and then it's also, again, like the content. What's interesting is that you've jumped into a lot of areas that people thought. You've gone through sort of all the issues of starting a business, but you've gone into retail when others are scared of it. What's the secret of knowing when is the time for that next step, and 
how did you wind up doing retail? Yeah, I think that's a really relevant question too, especially as we expand into wholesale with our eponymous beauty products as well, because, you know, I think there was this desire to stay like purely direct to consumer for so many brands like Goop. And then I think we all started to see, okay, we might need to broaden where are we offering these products. So I personally think that retail is super important for a brand because it's where the customer can come in and touch and feel and sort of be immersed in a brand experience. And that's why the experiences in the stores need to be so good. Because if I'm going to sell our great face cream on Amazon or Sephora, both of which we do, I need the brand halo to be really strong. Like I need the Goop brand to be intact when someone's adding a cream to their Amazon cart. And I do think that omni-channel is really important for modern brands and retail is such an important piece of that. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we would go and open a hundred retail stores, but I do think that, you know, having the right store and the right experience in the right market, it works as a customer acquisition tool. It works as a clienteling tool. And I think you can really make people forge a strong relationship to a brand in a retail store the way that you just can't digitally. You know, it's interesting. Two folks told me very similar stories as they began retail. Ralph Lauren told me he was starting his retail stores way back when because he wanted to show the department stores how to merchandise his product. Wow. Steve Jobs, when he was talking about the Apple stores, the retail stores, said, nobody makes my product look special. I need to build my own to show people how to do it. And But it's interesting. They both said basically what you just said, that it is all about sort of making it come to life and showing people what it should look and feel like. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about, some people call it work-life balance. Some people call it work-life integration. How do you make it work? Well, you know, being a mother and raising my children has been by far and away the most important aspect of my life. So as any working parent does, that balance is so important to find. And then I think how you define boundaries around each thing are so important to find. And I think it's an active process, you know, at one point in their childhoods, trying to do everything at the same time was not great. But then in COVID, you know, we would all be around the kitchen table and I could be doing emails and they could be doing homework. And it felt like a sort of shared activity. But, you know, I turned 50 in September and I did a big inventory of my life and what I thought was working and what I thought needed some improvement. And I think continuing to set boundaries around free time, time to be present with family Time to really unplug on the weekends, like that's become very critical for me. I used to spend Saturdays and half of Sundays working, thinking, catching up, making notes. And I've really delineated between my work week and my weekends now. That has been very, very important to me. Also, you know, meal times, really guarding meal times. We don't let any phones at the table at all at the house. And even with guests, you know, people sometimes are like, you're going to tell me I can't have my phone at the table. And I'm like, and I say, yes, because I want to hear 
what you have to say. I want to watch you think through something. I don't want anybody to be distracted. And, you know, these days, so precious little of our time is just full of presence. And so I've realized, okay, I can't do two things at the same time. And I want to be fully present in what I'm doing, whether, you know, I'm with my kid or whether I'm at my desk or at a meeting. So let's talk a little bit about the lessons you're passing on. You talked about your dad and some of the things he gave you, work ethic, appreciation for beautiful things, uh, real sense of design, taste, et cetera. What are one or two really important lessons you've tried to impart to your kids? I think kindness above all. Manners are really, really important to me. Table manners and proper manners. I just think that, you know, doors open for a young man or a young woman that is polite and kind and empathetic. You know, my parents were really great about letting me dream big and supporting that. And so I really want my kids to know that that is possible, like that dreaming big is actually great. Whether something manifests or it doesn't, you get to know yourself and be really close to yourself when you're dreaming about what you could be. And to me, being friends with yourself and knowing yourself deeply is kind of the great unlock in being a human being. You know, and you can't say to a kid, hey, just be yourself because it sounds like a platitude. So I try to foster conversations around where the felt sense is a visceral understanding of who they actually are and what is important to them and who they want to be, even if or especially if it doesn't align necessarily with what I think is right for them. So as a disruptor and someone who has pushed boundaries, how do you cope with criticism professionally and personally, mentally and physically? And by the way, what do you tell your kids about how to handle that? Yeah. You know, I've been through a long road with this stuff. You know, I, I sort of became famous when I was probably 22 years old. I learned very quickly to make a distinction between the projections of people who do not know me and the people who love me and, and want the best for me, even if they have to say something that might be hard to hear. And I I've understood very early that strangers who criticize you for whatever their reason is, right? And maybe it's, well, now for clickbait, or now it's just to momentarily feel better about themselves because they're releasing some venom, whether that's, you know, online or on Twitter or anywhere else. That has nothing to do with me. I'm merely a projection that they're sort of using for some gain that they're looking for. And I, I was really able to, I don't know, really make the the mental shift into understanding that it, it, it had nothing to do with me. Now, some criticism is really helpful. So you want that filtered out, right? Like sometimes it's super important to hear those things. But if it's coming from someone that I don't know, I, I always try to remember that there will be a piece that's projection. And, you know, we live in a culture where we don't know how to process through our feelings very well. Like we don't have rubrics for 
wow, this happened to me. This feels terrible. And I'm going to make sure I process it out. Like, so when we don't do that, those feelings get stuck in our bodies and they have to come out. So they come out in hating someone or something or being mean about it. It offers a temporary relief to somebody's own pain. So I think I also understand that very well as someone who frankly has spent all of my adult life. Like I've always been on a pursuit of taking full accountability for myself. And that's, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to do. This is related to that. How do you think about corporate culture? It is undeniably your company. So the culture is yours. How do you think about deliberately building that? And what does it stand for? How do you use it? How do you evolve it? It's definitely evolved over time. And as you know, I didn't grow up in a corporate culture, right? So I didn't start as an associate and work my way up. So I kind of started as a founder. And so, you know, you miss a lot. Like I've been playing catch up for a lot of these years and learning on the job, which has been amazing. But sometimes I think you don't start to think about these things until things are not working well, right? So when it was just me and a few girls, like in the little barn behind my house, It just felt great and we all communicated. And as the company grew and as I had less direct interaction with people every day and in a couple of pockets, like culture started to go a bit sideways, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not what we're doing. And, you know, having to make hard decisions around, for example, certain people at the company who were creating a bad culture and having as CEO to take responsibility for that and make hard and necessary changes or also really taking the time to step back and think about, okay, like what do we want it to feel like to work at Goop and what is important to us? And, you know, understanding like that communication is the foundation of this stuff and creating pillars. Like here we say our pillars culturally, we speak straight, we listen generously, we are for each other, we honor commitments, we acknowledge and appreciate, we include and align, and we are accountable. So it's really living those values every day. And I think you have to model it from the top. You know, like for me, for example, I always had a hard time with the first one, speaking straight, because I'm a pleaser. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And so I really had to overcome that and sort of bear through incredibly difficult, uncomfortable things to just speak straight. And so I think it's always an ongoing process, but I think culture has to be at the forefront of any leader's mind, because without a work culture that especially that mirrors, you know, what you're trying to put out into the world, it's it's an issue. So if you could, what advice would you give your 18 year old self? (sighs) Gosh, I mean, I think it would be around what I alluded to before with my own children around the importance about being radically yourself And, you know, I think, well, Shakespeare said it best when he said, to thine own self be true. And that sort of radical, come what may, loyalty to yourself. And the the come what may part is the hard part. And I think that's something that we learn with age. 
but I wish I could have had just a little bit more of that, you know, before I turned 40. Can you compare and contrast the life of an actor with the life of a CEO? I think they're very different, Bob. I mean, I am such a nine to fiver <laughs> at this point. You know, when you're an actor, you're all over the world. The hours are nuts. You know, you're working at three in the morning on a night shoot. Like, you you never know where your next job is coming from, who you're going to work with. You never know, as I said before, if your creativity is going to be expressed in the way that you're hoping it will. As a CEO, my mindset has shifted so much from kind of the lone artist to being the head of a culture and a culture of people who are aligned toward executing on the same vision and hopefully doing it happily. And so with that comes structure and routine and OKRs and all this stuff that my actress has no idea about <laughs> the, the actress that dwells within me. So I think apart from the kernel of chutzpah that both jobs really need in order to be successful, I think the lives are incredibly distinct. So we end each episode of Math and Magic by giving a shout out to those who influenced or inspired us through the analytical side and from the creative side of marketing and business. There's one person in the world that has both that I have met. And that's Whitney Wolf Hurd from Bumble, who is so analytically driven and so wildly creative. And is just, she's like a fountain of ideas and problem solving. That's fantastic. We have one person gets them both. Gwyneth, you've had a remarkable journey, amazing experiences, some wonderful lessons. Thanks for sharing them with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Gwyneth. One, provide meaningful service. Business should be more than just transactional. From working with charities to providing wellness to her customers, Gwyneth stays grounded by making sure the work she does can make a meaningful difference in people's lives. Two, model from the top. When you're the face of a company, you need to live the values you preach. Healthy company culture is an important part of any business. Setting an example for your colleagues will give you a strong foundation to build upon. Three, prioritize your values. Everything comes down to this, but it might be one of the hardest lessons to learn. Goop is successful because it is a unique extension of Gwyneth's interests and beliefs. Building something that's so personal can be challenging, but in the toughest times, knowing yourself in both life and business will ensure you stay on the right path. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sydney Rosenblum for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Our editor, Emily Marinoff. Our engineer, Jessica Kramchich. Our executive producers, Nikki Etor and Ali Perry. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.